Today's a special day, January the 16th, for our family, for Brenda and I. And uh, our firstborn turned 44 today. So that, I, I rehearsed that day. I mentioned to him, you know, it was a Thursday, about seven, a few minutes after seven, that uh, he finally arrived after she was in labor all day. But I remember that day so distinct. The whole thing about getting close to due time and all this. And we live 45 miles from the Gainesville Hospital, Alachua General Hospital. It is no more. The, the te Shan's Teaching Hospital associated with the University of Florida has kind of taken over everything. But uh, uh, I won't dance around it. The day started with her water breaking. And, uh, of course, I uh, was like, oh, we got to go. And... Uh, Call her mother lived about 15 minutes from us, and I called her and she said, "Well, I'll be right over." And she came in. She got out a skillet. She started fixing breakfast. I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "It's going to be a long day. You better get you something to eat." I said, "But her what?" She says, "That she has no labor. It's going to be a long day." Boy, she prophesied the truth. Of course, I, I realized later she had three kids. She ought to know what she was talking about. But I was like, "This. We got to get to the hospital." But uh, I just. Back then, you couldn't go in. You just couldn't be a part of any of that. And I got my first view of Jason through a nursery window glass. Big old faucet mark over his cheek where they had to use forceps. And to, I'm still speechless. I really did not know what to say, what to think. But I did hear the Lord speak distinctly to me standing there. He says, you love him. I said, I, I didn't know that this was possible. He said, just remember, I love mine enough to give him for you. And I understood the cross better. And I think parents understand John 3.16 better. I, I just believe we have a dimension of understanding the, the magnitude that God so loved his only son. So, uh, happy birthday to Jason. I got to listen to Pastor Brad's message uh, Sunday evening. I thought I'd just check and see, and kudos to Shane for posting it pretty quick. So I uh, got to listen to that great message on uh, provocative passion. I don't know whether it was youth pastor preaching day, but uh, at Faith Evangelical Free Church, the church that Kelly attends, um, we visited many times. In fact, the, the lead pastor, it's a church that runs probably 3,000 or so, but they have multiple, two, two services, large sanctuary, great presence of God, great biblical preaching. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not into labels or, you know, there's one body of Christ. But they, man, every time I've been there, I've, I've really soaked up the word and their worship is so authentic. And here comes Pastor, his name is Brad, Pastor Brad, the lead pastor. He comes over and talks to us and kind of like, oh, well, we've been here before and and I said, I pastor a church in Tuscaloosa. He said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I said, it's okay. We're getting over it. It's okay. No, you know, I, I appreciate your sympathy if it's real. Um, but the youth pastor preached a powerful message. And I was taking notes in my journal. And, uh, and boy, did Brad preach a great message here. And Nora's message on uh, handling worry and anxiety and and discovering how God's peace can keep us in the midst of storms. And there is a peace 
that he gives us in the midst of chaos. So uh, it's good to be back. It's tough leaving two little faces begging to say, can't you stay longer? And um, I said, no, I need to get back. But Nana staying. Uh, and Joshua rode with us to the airport. Sorry to be a little anecdotal, but uh, it was just yesterday. And uh, we picked him up, headed straight to the airport, Brenda. And he was telling us how we could fix this problem. He's five, and he says, you know, you and Nana can sell your house and just move up here and move in with us. I said, I don't think you've run that by your parents. And uh, you might ought to talk with them. Before that, he was sizing up one of my luggages, and he says, you know, I could fit in that. I says, yeah, but you can't breathe where they put that. Oh, well, uh, so uh, he's like a walking... I was telling someone a maps app. The child has a photographic memory of streets. And one time he says, Papa, you're lost. This is not the way we go home. I said, well, I'm swinging another way. Oh, yeah, I recognize that. That's where we bought our mattress for my bunk bed. I was like, who are you? <laughs> who are you? What are you doing in my back seat as a five-year-old? But uh, it's good to be back. There's a passage I want to share with you this evening before I give you that. I'm going to just refer to the last couple of chapters of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But there's a passage that's always kind of interested me, and it's a very popular passage. In fact, just recently I've seen athletes texting this and tweeting this passage as they make a change in the direction of their life, and, uh, and it's a really popular passage. It is connected to the last year's of Judah's existence as a nation. And, uh, and that's what we're going to look at. We're going to go down a little bit of a historical trail this evening. Hope you're all right with that. History is one of my great loves. There's people, places, and things that happen. And um, it tells a story. I've always been interested in stories that's behind people. Well, the four last kings of Judah, two out of the four were only king for three months. Three months. That's not even time to get your cabinet assembled. But it was that tumultuous a time, and all of this was set in motion by the death of Josiah, the last godly king of Judah. And uh, just to kind of remind you about how all of this happened, he had rediscovered the law of the Lord. He had, he had rediscovered Passover. And, and Israel was having a revival. Judah was having a revival. And it's all because Josiah turned his heart toward God. And he was redirecting the entire nation back to God. They said there was never a celebration of Passover like the one he reinstituted. There was a move of God. He sought the face of God. But he's also told by the prophet that because of Manasseh's great sins, God was going to really punish the nation. But because he had repented, because he was frightened when he read the law, he says, we, we're in trouble. I mean, the lights came on for him. We're in trouble. We have rebelled against God. We've sinned against God. We're in trouble. And in his appealing to God, God reassured him that there was judgment coming, but he also promised him not in your lifetime because of your sensitivity to the Lord. 
So everything was going great. The Egyptian army was coming through their area and uh, wasn't even coming to fight them, but going to fight a battle at Carchemish. And uh, he took difference to that and headed out with his army. And if you know the story, Pharaoh Necro uh, said, uh, my, I really don't have an argument with you. This is nothing to do with Judah. I'm going to fight the real enemy that I'm fighting, and it's not you. Stay out of this. This is not your fight. And he even told Josiah, this is interesting, and this kind of fits into what we're going to share in a little bit. He even told Josiah, your God told me that you're not supposed to be involved. And it wasn't just like this Pharaoh had this like inkling. The one who was writing Chronicles, the chronicler, said that God had spoken through the Egyptian Pharaoh to tell Josiah, stay out of this. So here's me thinking through all this and going through all this. I'm thinking, what would have happened if Josiah had followed the leading of God? Well, we know one thing. He would have been killed in battle. Because when he disguised himself and went on in and his army engaged the Egyptian army, archers hit his chariot with arrows and he was severely wounded and he died in the chariot and they took his body back to Jerusalem immediately. And I'm going to show you this graphic and we're just going to leave this graphic up. These are the last four kings of Judah. And immediately... When you look at this, you think that the Babylonian Empire kind of subjugated these. Well, the first one up here, Jehoahaz, was not subjugated by Babylon. Pharaoh Necho won that battle. Josiah was killed in battle, and he took Jehoahaz and put him in charge. Or, or let me just back up. The people immediately put Jehoahaz in charge, and he lasted three months. Pharaoh Necho came in and dethroned him, took him off to Egypt, and he died in Egypt. We don't, that's all we know about him. And this is one of Josiah's sons. So the people, after Josiah was killed, they put his son on the throne, and that didn't last but three months. Now the next one, Jehoiakim, is the one that he, the Egyptian Pharaoh, put in charge. He, re, he had a different name, but he named him that name. And so he ruled 11 years. But during that 11 years, the demographics of that region changed. And Babylon became the great empire, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. Um, it was really one of the eight wonders of the world at the time. The uh, opulence that they had, it, it was just a mammoth machine. Remember that the Medes and Persians only defeated them how? they came in an aqueduct under the wall. Their wall was, it couldn't be penetrated and it couldn't be conquered, the wall of their city. And they sat in parting inside when the Medes and Persians was figuring out how, you know, their, their engineers was diverting this aqueduct, this water, to a different way. And when they finally got it where they redirected the water, that's how they had water during this siege. Their army came in the middle of the night under the, under the wall to that aqueduct and without hardly a fight conquered Babylon. But that's when Daniel was there 
and, and the hand came down and the wall, wrote on the wall, many, many tickle you farson. You have been weighed in the balances and found one in. And Daniel says, tonight, this king is going to be stripped from you. And they probably laughed him. It's not said. They probably laughed themselves silly, like you're crazy. They can't come over that wall. But Babylon was a great empire. So during Jehoiakim's reign, Babylon came in, and Nebuchadnezzar, really, they really subjugated him and made him a vassal. And, uh, you know, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, you can, you can kind of follow along this. But the next king that was put in place was Jehoiachin. And, uh, and in some of these, there was some deportation. This, the first deportation was when he came in and removed Jehoiakim, put him in chains, took him off to Babylon, and also took some of the gold and the silver out of the temple. Didn't take all of it, but took some of it. And then he put Jehoiachin in charge, and for some reason, we're not told, for some reason he, that he was 18, and he lasted three months, and Babylon came back. Something happened there, we're not told, but it was not good. So Nebuchadnezzar came back. This time, he took everything. He took almost all of the gold. In fact, if you go to 2 Kings 24, I'm going to read some of this. And this is not even my main passage, okay? So, hey, how much time you got tonight? Because I haven't, I haven't preached in a week, so here we go. Um, I want you to look at 2 Kings 24. It says, at that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, this is verse 10, if you found 2 Kings 24 is more detailed than Chronicles. So this is Jehoiachin. Uh, he came up to the city and his officer would besiege him. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, his officials, all surrendered to him. And this was in the eighth year of the king of uh, Babylon. He took Jehoiachin prisoner. And remember, this is a very short siege. It's only three months. They come back and they remove him. And like I said, who knows what the reason for this was. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't like what was going on. So they took him out of power. His, he and his mother and it said his wives now. For him to be 18, he shouldn't have wives, but he did. That's scary. And it said the Lord, the Lord had declared Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles at Solomon king of Israel had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers, fighting men, all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, the prominent people of the land, the king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men strong and fit for war and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. And if you remember, that's the last king of Judah when uh, he came in and defeated. It's tragic what happened to Zedekiah. But I want to stop right there because... It is Jehoiachin, this three-month reign that kind of fits where we're going to go tonight. I want you to think about that transition. This guy was only in power three months, but something interesting happens here. 
And this is why I want to take you to Jeremiah 29. And of course, the greatest verse in Jeremiah is, 29 is what? Verse 11. That's right. I've seen, I've seen a lot of people using this verse in transition, going from one thing to another. But I want you to see some things because everybody uses this verse out of context. I've mentioned this before. Someone says, if you take a verse out of context, you make it a pretext. And it's a standalone statement, but it's not a statement that stands alone for us. It is, I don't even know if you look at the context of this, if people would be so eager to say, yeah, I'll take that. Because in the middle of, of something going on, God tells people this. But here, here early in, watch this. In, in chapter 29, um, it says the text of this letter, Jeremiah is writing this letter to the exiles, those who had been carried off to Babylon. And in verse 2 is this parenthesis. This was after King Jehoiachin, the three-month reign of an 18-year-old king. Something happened there that gave an opportunity for Jeremiah to write a letter and send it to those people who were taken into Babylon. So this is after, this is after Zedekiah has been put in place. There's still a nation of Judah. There's still a temple. It doesn't have anything hardly inside of it. But there's still a temple and there's still walls and the city's still intact. But hardly any skilled people are there. It's only the poor people that are there. And so he, he, leaves, he leaves the people who probably do not know how to have leadership and function. He tried to take every... Many people think this is when Daniel and his three friends were deported. When they started going after the skilled people, the highly educated people, the promising people, they took even the fighting force. They, they co-opted their army, which was a small army by that time, and took all of them, everything. So they just kind of gutted Jerusalem and Judah from the best of people. So it says, this was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother and the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. I want you to drop down to verse 4 and listen to this. This is way before, this is not too far before verse 11. This is what God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who are carried into exile from Jerusalem. I'm, I'm going to just mention four lessons from this. Four points that kind of stand out to me um, because there's things going on here that are lessons for us, for us. And we can claim verse 11, but it really is mixed in with some things here. This was God's doing. It was God doing this. He even said, I carried you into exile. I'm doing this to you. As part of the judgment. Just, just read along here with me. I carried him into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because it prospers, 
because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't it interesting that God says, I'm doing this. I've sent you here. You're on my timetable. You're in my will. So settle down. And these secular people that you're with, these idolaters that you're around, pray for them to prosper. Now, how strange does that sound? He says, if they prosper, you prosper. Basically, what he was telling them is this. And the first lesson in this is the greatest danger to us is not the danger with, outside, it's the danger within. The greatest danger to us is not out external. It's not the culture we're in. And I'm, I'm kind of like thinking the culture we're in, sometimes we bemoan the culture we're in, but according to what he says here, I have you where you're at. Pray for the surroundings that you're in. Pray for them. This is my will. You are to show character and resilience to them. Your witness to them is how you treat them. This is what he's saying. Don't be antagonist. Don't be a separatist. Don't look upon them as these unregenerate pagans, which they were. He says, you pray for them. They're, you're here in their care in my will. And there's some people that may be in a job that just the, the enormity of the darkness there may be suffocating. But the danger is, is not the ones that you're, that's around you. It's how you're dealing with them. And he says, pray for your surrounding." These are people who have just been demoted and deported out of their homes. And they're in a strange land, strange language. They're in people who do not worship the way they worship. They don't live the way they live. They're totally different. And he says, but I have you here for a purpose. Settle in. Be happy. Just, just relax. You're here, and you're going to hear, be here for a while. Later on, he says, 70 years later, all of this is going to change. But for right now, you're going to be here a while. Because the real danger to them was not outside of them. It was within. There was false prophets that was both still in Jerusalem. If you look at chapter 28, Hananiah, this is the chapter before this letter that he writes to the exiles. Hananiah was prophesying hey, we're going to win this and God's going to deliver us. And, and uh, he personally goes after the veracity of Jeremiah's prophecy. And Jeremiah confronts it. He says, this is the word. Jeremiah was not a very popular person. He was not a popular preacher because he did not preach what people wanted to hear. And we ought to remember that. We ought to remember, and we, we, ought to, we ought to examine the content of preaching. We ought to have our nose in the book. And if you hear something, the Holy Spirit will prompt you, like, you know what, there's something about that, that just, there's something, I need to look at that. Because every time, you know, I was in a seminary that was not theologically like, it was not Pentecostal, it was almost anti-Pentecostal. And every time they would lay something out there that confronted 
a be- part of my belief system, it drove me back to the book. I said, wait a minute, I need to lo- read that. I need to look at that. False prophets are the greatest danger to the church. Those who have false teaching are the greatest hazard to, to the church. It was the greatest hazard there because he had people in Jerusalem telling them, this is it. It's going to be a, a different from here on out. No more invasion of Babylon. We're going to come through this. We're going to be, everything is going to work out. And Jeremiah says, it's not going to work out. We're done. It's finished. We just don't know when it's going to happen, but God is through with this. He will destroy this place. And Jeremiah rehearses that in this letter over in the latter part of it when um, I think it's around verse 15. If you read the whole letter, he's, he gets to that. But before that, he's talking about pray for the people around you. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty God, I'm in verse uh, 8 now. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They're not speaking on my behalf. Here's a question. If people are deceived, do they know they're deceived? So how does people how do people get deceived? They receive teaching that has not been examined. There's no filter. For what they're hearing, there's no filter of the word to say, is this legit? Is this right? Because when you get to verse 11, it's a wonderful verse. I mean, verse 10, he, he promises, in 70 years, I'm going to bring you all back. I'm going to bring you back. And then we have that great verse. I know the plans I have for you. And it's just plans to prosper you. But it wasn't going to happen right then. It wasn't going to happen right then. It was still future. He said in 70 years this is going to turn around. So you just settle in for the ride. Do not fight this. And all along it's kind of tragic. Here's an 18-year-old king who hasn't been in power for three months. And he decides, he decides that it's not worth fighting. He surrenders. His mother surrenders. Everybody in his family surrenders. There's no killing of them. In fact, later on, he gets to eat at the king's table, at Nebuchadnezzar's table. He, he, he has favor with them later on in life. He's not in a prison. He's kind of living in their good grace because he went along with what he did evil inside. I don't know how you could do evil in the sight of the Lord for three months, but he did, as it says there, he did evil inside of the Lord. But he had the wisdom enough to know what Zedekiah would not do. He just couldn't bring himself to, to go out that, the walls of that city and turn himself into Nebuchadnezzar, just like Jeremiah says, if you do that, you will live. If you fight this, you'll be destroyed. And was he ever destroyed? He wasn't. He probably wished he had been killed. Because when they made a run for it and they chased them down and caught them, 
Nebuchadnezzar brought him out, brought his family out, brought his sons out, killed his sons in front of him, and gouged his eyes out so that the last thing he would see with his eyes is the death of his family and took him off to live that reality. Here's Jehoiachin surrendering himself to the purpose of God, recognizing somebody was in his ear and he listened to him. Better not fight this. This is what Jeremiah was telling him all the time. Do not fight this. This is... This is God behind this. This is punishment for Manasseh's sins. And when we're trying to figure out what's what, you know, and the lessons that come from this, here's the third, here's the third thing. Or let me, just, let me just go back to verse 13 because this is, where, this is the verse that captured me. This is why I'm in chapter 27. I've read this and reread it, but it's this verse that kind of captured me. God has said, this is the plan I have for you, and it's the plan to prosper you. And then he says this, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. And I stopped right there. Because this is the promise of God. I have plans for you, and this is how it's going to work. And these plans include you calling to me and coming to me and praying to me. And I'm going to listen to you. And then he says this in verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. Now let me ask you something. Is there degrees of seeking the Lord? There has to be some degrees of seeking the Lord. So let me, let me throw this question. What defines seeking the Lord with all your heart? What defines that? He said, I'm going to seek the Lord with all my heart. What makes that seeking? Undoubtedly, there is something to this because this is what the Lord said. He said, you will seek me. You will seek me. And you will find me. But you, when it's when you seek me with all of your heart, what defines all of your heart? You know, sadly, we do the external sometimes as all the heart. It's louder. It's more demonstrative. It's more passion-like what Brad preached on, provocative passion. We kind of measure those things by the external appeal, the external petitions. But is that what all of the heart means? To seek the Lord with all of our heart. All my heart. Let me throw this passage at you. This is Isaiah 65, verse 1. He says, I, was, I reveal myself to those who did not know me. And those, well, let me just read it to you. Um, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. And Paul uses this same verse in what I call the salvation chapter of Romans, Romans 10. 
when he's talking about people who believe and call on them, Lord, put their trust in him, confess with their mouth, believe in their heart that they will be saved, they'll be regenerated. And later on he says, what happened to Israel? What happened to Israel? He says, this is what happened to Israel. They missed it. Because God says, and he quotes Isaiah 65.1 in Romans 10.20. He quotes this verse as to show that the people who should know didn't get it. The people who, it's almost like God is saying that the people of Babylon have a greater chance to see who I am than you see who I am because you're on the wrong path. You're looking at this convoluted. We're supposed to be up here. They're supposed to be down here. And because they're up here and we're down here, we don't get it, Lord. We don't get it. That's not supposed to work that way. And all along, God is saying, this is part of my plan to reinstate you. Now, if people find him who did not even seek for him, how does that work? Well, I, I don't have a real rock-solid answer to that, but I'm going to give you what I, I do believe is part of it. I believe the difference in seeking the Lord with all your heart and people finding him who's not seeking him, kind of like Alicia Chloe, is they weren't really seeking him, but they realized he was seeking them. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. It wasn't like they were praying to God, show me, show me who you are. If you're real, do this, do this, do this. It's all about revelation. The people of Israel had a revelation of God through their law, through prophets. And the ending words of this letter, chapter 29, and I've read through the whole thing multiple times. He said, because false prophets have preached rebellion against me. It's just not a different way of looking at things. When you're saying that, that's opposite of the purpose of God. He says, you're rebelling against me. And what I believe he's saying, seeking the Lord with all our heart, meaning we need to flush out all of our ideas of how that works and simply go after him. Go after his, not even his presence, but his, the knowledge. One of the songs were, that I may know him and give myself to him, that I can know him, that I want to know you, Lord. I don't want to know about you. I want to know you and, and live that out. Live that out every day, that Jesus is not a figure in the Bible. He is a living revelation of God to us. And he wants to know, he wants us to know him. He wants us to experience him. And I believe he waits for us to come to that place where I'm done with games and with just momentary seeking you, Lord. I want to seek you with all my heart. All my heart really is handling the revelation of God that we have. And that is not about being loud or shouting. It could be like that. It could be loud and shouting. There's nothing wrong with loud and shouting. That's not necessarily a sign of depthness, of substance. And this is what God is calling the church to. You know, 
I feel like that this year ought to be a year of miracles. I, I, I pray for my, my son-in-law. He has MS. There's lesions on his brain. And um, I don't even know what he thinks about me because he won't say what he thinks about me. But I looked square in his eyes and I said, Jesus raised people from the dead, one of them, four days dead, and I don't believe what's in you challenges at all his power. And I'm praying for the healing, those lesions to dry up. I'm believing God for a miracle in your life. There's nothing that should stop the purpose of God. And it's this, I don't don't know where we can get to where the light comes on and we're just done with trying to do it ourselves. And I think that seeking the Lord with all our heart is just throwing ourselves on his mercy. Open, open agony. There's things that we will face that we can't fix. I know the plans for you, declares the Lord. That's a great verse. But it's the people in a real pickle. And they don't want to be there. Some are in a place right now you don't want to be. You don't want to be, you know. I know my son-in-law don't want to have MS. He don't want to have to take this powerful medication that he's on. And we, we, you know, he's 32 years of age. He's got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And so far, the symptoms have been pretty minimal. But how I many you know that can work on your mind? Like, wow, what is the road ahead of me? And, and I just believe we need voices. We need voices of saying, we're not in denial here, but we need to cry out to God. We need to really cry out to God. We just don't need to accept it. We need to see what does God want to do in this? What does he want? And I just believe he has miracles waiting for us. And I think they're waiting at the end. You know, revival, we think a revival is the, is the resulting harvest. Revival is really the sowing. Revival is that fasting and seeking and yearning and reaching. and those, that's, that's revival. The resulting effect is the fruit of all of that. And I think that's what God is calling us to do, is to seek him with all of our heart, not, not partially, not dissect our lives up and say, this, belong, this, this part of my life belongs to me, and this part of my life belongs to Jesus. These, this part of the day belongs to pretty much me, and this part belongs to Jesus. Somewhere in, in there, it's kind of like Brother Lawrence in practicing the presence of God is like, got stuck with kitchen duty and just complaining and all of a sudden he realized well complaining about this is not making this work so I'm going to wash dishes for Jesus and Lord while I'm washing dishes I'm just going to believe that you're present in my washing dishes and in my and as I do this this is for you and this is and, and he really began to experience the presence of Jesus in the kitchen Doing a job that nobody in the monastery wanted to do. That was just handed off to him. You, you're doing a pretty good job there. Just keep it up, buddy. And he turned that thing around as a devotion to the Lord as getting his heart in tune with the purpose of God. The task he had was menial. It was degrading. But he turned it around by saying, this is me and Jesus. This is all about me and Jesus. We got a lot of things pulling at us. We got work. We got family. We got finances. 
right? We're the busiest generation ever. And we have more apparatuses to save us time. Everything from an Instapot, which is a great mechanism that somebody came up with. And man, those things are selling like hotcakes. I'm seeing them walk out of Sam's with those things. And people here have discovered all that is to give us more time, but what do we do with that? It seems like we, <laughs> all the things that save us time, we have less time. I think it comes down to our heart. The being pulled in different directions and the passion of our souls is being redirected outside the purpose of God. Somewhere, I don't, I don't have the answer how we hit the brakes, how we pump the brakes and say, Oh, God, show me how I can do this differently. This seeking you, this experiencing you. With all of, I mean, I was in a beehive for seven, day, for seven days with a five-year-old and an eight-year-old who do not like to get up and get ready for school. It was like, oh, boy, this is so much fun. And I understand now why Kelly's tired all the time, you know, because we were like, we stepped in and kind of gave her some relief. And, and I feel for parents. I feel for I, both people are working. Kelly's now working, and, and their life is just like, super fast down the freeway and and we just we just want to give them some respite but in that respite i know they need to join hands and pray and seek the face of god and believe for your healing believe for god to break through and not just accept what's going on but press into the presence of god and believe god to to dry up those lesions you know, when I said personal things, I, I believe God's given me some prophetic things to say to him, and I've said them to him, and, and he probably thinks I'm crazy. But I just believe that God has his hand on his life, and he wants to do something in his life. And, I'm, you know, crazy, whatever he thinks of me, I'm, I'm going to tell him what God speaks to me. But the same thing God might be speaking to us about something. What do you do with your time? What do you do when you go home? I, how do you spend the last hours? Is, is Jesus anywhere part of that? You know, Bobby Bryant is back. Let me just give you a heads up. Bobby Bryant is back. <laughs> and uh, I'll finish with this. Um, and Brad was in the office, and I says, you're about to meet Bobby Bryant. <laughs> and Bobby Bryant is, well, I'm not going to say that, but, um, but he was just sharing, and, and I told him, I said, your wife is a gift from God. He says, you, you, just, you, just, you just can't understand what a blessing she is. At 4.30 every morning, she's in the Bible. She's reading Scripture at 4.30 every morning. She doesn't miss a morning. And the last thing she does at night, she has the Bible on her, in front of her, praying and crying out to God. I said, buddy, you better hang on to her. But he sees... He, he sees someone who starts their day that way and ends their day that way. And I guarantee you, with those two bookends, something's happening in her life through the course of the day. Because you're starting with the presence of Jesus, you're ending with the presence of Jesus, and he does not want it to be any other way than full speed ahead for you and him. I guarantee as busy as your work is and as strenuous as your work is, if we give him a tithe at the start of the day with our time, and seeking him and praying and talking to him. Watch out how your day will go.
just watch how it goes. He said, you will find me. You will find me. You seek for me that way. You search for me. I'm not hiding. I'm right in front of you. You will find me. Would you stand with me?